Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have Kevin Dom, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. All right, hello everyone. So this is Teresa Chan again, and I'm here to introduce our guest speaker for this episode. It's my pleasure to introduce a friend, a colleague, and really a teacher in many ways for myself, Dr. Kyla Kainers. Kyla is uh, one of our academic staff here at McMaster University. She works at Hamilton Health Sciences, but she is most notably the Director of Simulation for our residency program, and she's also the Assistant Director of Patient Safety and Insight to Simulation at the Center for Simulation-Based Learning at McMaster University. So in this segment, Dr. Brendan Trotter interviews Dr. Kyla Keeners about how she developed an academic niche. So hello everyone, my name is Kyla Kainers. Um, I'm an eMERGE doc in Hamilton, and I am also the simulation director for the Royal College Emergency Medicine Program. I will talk a little bit about myself later, um, but basically I'm going to talk today about what's hot in med ed. This talk was originally given at the University of Toronto Emergency Medicine Education Symposium. And so when I was there, the theme of the day was finding your niche. And I was supposed to talk about what's hot in med ed. I decided to rename the talk, Sharing is Caring. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today. And so what do I mean by this? So what I mean by sharing is collaboration, mentorship, non-traditional means of education scholarship, like FOMED resources, literally sharing your work with things like Dropbox, being available, and asking for help. In the spirit of finding your niche, this talk becomes a little bit of a narrative of my personal experience, because I think my personal experience is the best evidence that I have for the next big thing in med ed, which is collaboration. And so a little bit more detail about who I am. Like I said, I'm a merge doc in Hamilton, Ontario, and a director of the SIM program for our McMaster Emerge Royal College program. Um, I'm also co-founder and editor-in-chief of emsimcases.com, which is a website where we publish on a bi-weekly basis peer-reviewed cases in simulation, specifically in emergency medicine. I'm a budding simulation scholar with a few research projects on the go, and apparently I'm someone who's recorded on a podcast. <laughs> so how did I get here? Here I am, less than, or now two years out of training, uh, and somehow I'm asked to speak about finding your niche. Talk about a good setup for imposter syndrome. In the big picture, I am so junior in the world of emergency medicine and in the world of simulation and medical education. But somehow I've managed to stumble upon and carve out my own niche. And so how did it start? <laughs> it all started in a conference room with a mannequin. As a resident, I received essentially no simulation experience. Um, I went to CHEO for my PEDS Emerge rotation, and there they do regular simulation training. I thought it was scary, but fantastic. And so when it came time for a subspecialty project, I decided that it would be a neat idea to see if I could develop a sim curriculum for our learners. 
this is where I say the stars kind of aligned. I had a program director who was really open to the idea and encouraged me to go for it. The program had already purchased a mannequin or two and the equipment that we needed to go forward with this. And I had a fantastic mentor in Dr. Jonathan Sherbineau who helped give me the medical education background that I needed to do this properly. Um, so what did I do? I got the training I needed. I took the simulation educator training course, performed a needs assessment, mapped out a curriculum, designed 24 cases, and then piloted the implementation all during my PGY4 year. The stars kind of then aligned again, because now having done this in the end of residency, um, I had evidence of my success when I was going out on my job hunt. So in my first year as staff, I got to become the director of simulation, which was kind of a role created for me. Lucky me, my dream job was created for me. Even better, while I was in PGY5, a co-resident of mine, a Dr. Donica Orlick, created the senior simulation cases so that by the time I started as staff, we had a full curriculum that was ready to go and was fully implemented. So in my current role, I facilitate over 30 simulation sessions a year. I mentor about two residents a year through simulation fellowships. I run workshops for the emergency medicine faculty on debriefing skills. I'm kind of a de facto sim tech and technical resource coordinator because someone has to do it. <laughs> I collaborate on simulation-related research, and I will have to redesign our sim curriculum as we need for competency-based medical education. So what I found is that there were lots of unintended benefits from going through the process of trying to address what I saw as a problem. In some level, I became the simulation expert, so to speak, in our eMERGE community. I put that in quotations because I am by no means a thought leader in simulation. But it turns out that being the only person willing to tackle a problem makes you an expert in that problem within your local micro context. And that's often enough street credibility to build your expertise upwards. So through this, I was able to connect with other local leaders in simulation. And now we're collaborating on cases across residency programs and co-facilitating workshops through our simulation center. That's just one part of what I do though. So this experience designing the curriculum was one thing, but I feel that where things really changed with my career is when I started sharing. And so I say from frustration, a blog was born. Um, EM Sim Cases was made as a solution to another problem. And that was how ridiculous it was that our program had to start from scratch with simulation when everyone else was already running simulation. When I was doing my fellowship, Dr. Sherbineau connected me with another resident, uh, Dr. Martin Kuskny, who was out at McGill and facing a similar problem. Martin and I decided that we didn't want anyone else to have to go through our experience of starting a curriculum entirely from scratch and writing all of these sim cases, and so we developed a website and decided to share all of our work. So I've already alluded to EM Sim Cases is a peer-reviewed website. It's a website that provides peer-reviewed simulation cases for eMERGE programs, all available in the FOMED spirit. So all of the cases are transcribed to our template, which is currently done by a team of residents. Then they're sent through peer review. So two reviewers go over the cases to look at their objectives, their flow, and their content. And then they're published with all the needed media in open access format on the blog. So this is where people who write a lot of simulation cases, I can see sometimes they get their backs up or they feel a little bit uncomfortable and look at me like, uh, but these are my cases. <laughs> like I worked really hard on these. Why would I want someone else to steal them? And this is part of what I call the med ed disconnect. If you're doing research, right? A researcher sets out with the goal of sharing their work with others via publication. 
Now, traditional RCT studies don't really work with curriculum design and education. Um, so oftentimes, I think what happens is that we see our only credit as local recognition. So we feel like if we give what we've done to someone else for free, then somehow we're diminishing our work or not getting credit for what we've done locally. But I see this differently. I say that if you can't publish in a traditional means, well, then you should publish anyways. So write about your educational innovation or your design. Share your work and ideas broadly. Use online open access means of publication because they serve a useful purpose in fixing the publication gap. Education scholarship is not just limited to journal publication. So reach out to bloggers, reach out to other people, find ways to promote what you're doing because your work is valuable. To give an example, at EMSIM Cases, we've been publishing cases for three years now. Our website gets about 10,000 page views per month. We currently have more than two years worth of content that's been submitted to us from others across the world. That includes a series of cases from Australia and California. We just finished a collaboration with the U of T, so we've been doing a six-month feature of cases that the U of T has used in the past. And we're also sharing some education scholarship articles. So these articles are designed to feature the incredible work of other faculty and residents across the country. So for example, one that we just had recently was from Jared Bayliss out in Kelowna. He's a resident who's been involved in implementing some in-situ simulation there, and he did a great review of their experience in Kelowna. And so here I'd like to lay out sort of my argument for sharing. How many different ways can you really write an asthma case? So it's either a child or an adult. If you're writing the worst case scenario, they all end up being intubated. So then after they're intubated, they're either going to have air trapping or they're going to have attention pneumothorax. Is there much else that's going to happen? Probably not, right? So how many permutations and combinations are really there? So if 12 educators across the country spend 30 minutes writing pretty much the exact same case, that's six hours of work that could have built something so much better. Now in, add in all of the internal medicine staff and the ICU staff and faculty from across the world, in the US, in Australia, wherever else, who are doing the exact same thing, and you can see the cumulative amount of wasted effort that is put into rewriting the exact same simulation case. So to me, eliminating inefficiency frees up our capacity to do bigger and better things. I also think that sharing in any capacity, whether it's just showing a friend or lending it to a buddy at a hospital down the road, is a form of peer review, whether it's formal or informal. And that helps to make your work better when you get feedback from someone else. Further, I think that creative work often requires many minds. And so the more people that you have involved and with time freed up to come up with new ideas, the bigger and better your ideas become. So how did we make it work at EM Sim Cases? Um, for one, we give people credit. So the editors get a permanent bio that recognizes them on the website. So you can search their name and their bio on the blog comes up. Case authors get a bio published on the page where their case is published, as well as linked into the case in the Word document. Their name is permanently embedded in there. To make it work, we leaned on our mentors and contacts. So we looked to local mentors initially to review cases, even if they weren't direct SIM enthusiasts. And then through there, met contacts from conferences and mentors. And the other thing that we did is we've shared the work across many people. So at this point, we have enough case editors working for us that no one person needs to review a case any more often than once every two to three months. So again, from creating this, there were more unintended benefits. 
right? I didn't set out to work on case design, but I kind of unintentionally became an expert in case design because I'm reviewing cases all the time. Through that, I've developed relationships over time with an amazing network of case editors, and that network has led to expanded opportunities. It's turned into a way to mentor learners. So now we have Sim Fellows who transcribe the cases as part of their learning, and the Shred Fellows at the U of T have been publishing essays on the blog. And so essentially, through EM Sim Cases, we've developed an emergency medicine simulation community of practice. What's interesting is that my community of practice is so much more than just EM Sim Cases. And I think that's why my story is important. Because in the process of trying to solve a couple of problems, I found my niche. And now that I have it, the opportunities to collaborate and build on that brand keep creating themselves. So that's my story, and I think we've heard plenty enough about me, more than I generally like talking about myself. <laughs> but I'm starting there so that I can sort of teach a couple of little lessons. Um, so this comes back to the idea that sharing is caring. It has never come back to haunt me when I share my resources and successes. It has always led to new opportunities, collaborations, and ideas. So when I talk about ways of sharing, again, I talk about things like collaboration. So you want to write a paper. Why not write it with others? A group somewhere else wants to do something similar? Great, don't fight them, work together. Now you have more potential, more capacity, and potentially more research subjects to include. Mentorship is important. Be available. Be available to have chats with people, answer emails, answer the advice questions people ask, go for beers with someone to generate ideas and reach out. Don't be afraid to seek help from others who have different experience, more experience, or experience in areas that you need help with. So what I say is that one thing leads to another, and this becomes the power of sharing. Sharing means you avoid duplication so that you streamline your work yet accomplish more. And this allows you to magnify your impact. So for example, let's say that you're doing some sepsis research in the eMERGE. And then you're chatting with your, your local QI expert, and they think of ways that they could pair this with a QI initiative. And then you're chatting with one of your intensivists, and they think of a way that you could work together on this. Suddenly you have three people with different lenses and perspectives working on a project, making it better and increasing the impact of who it can reach. And then the intensivist talks to their critical care blogger friend, and suddenly you have a non-published means of sharing your work even further, in addition to the publication that you might accomplish. And so sharing your work magnifies your impact in realms you might not even anticipate, which leads to personal growth for yourself and reciprocal growth in others. And so I think we need a little bit of a cognitive reframing. We need to stop viewing academic achievement as an arms race, which I think university promotions can sometimes make people feel this way, but there is no harm in involving others in your work. Then you all get academic points and advancement. So tap on the shoulders of those with key expertise and respond and engage when your shoulder is tapped. So I say more brains make a better final product. It's intuitive, right? I just submitted my first grant proposal and to do so, I tapped on the shoulders of eight other people. Eight. <laughs> they all had some different expertise to offer that helped to shape the project into a much better project than it could have been with only me writing the grant proposal. Not only do more brains mean a better product, but more brains means more ideas. More ideas leads to more opportunity, and more opportunity leads to more collaboration, which then leads to more opportunity. 
And so I call this the endless loop cycle of collaboration and opportunity, where one project leads to more connections and those connections lead to more projects until eventually you have more opportunities than the amount of time you have available. And when this happens, for one, you realize that you've found your niche. And for two, you can start to pick the opportunities that help you to best carve out your niche. So how do you get there? Um, I think for one, you should seek to solve problems that matter to you. Often when there's a problem, it means that there's a gap in knowledge or experience or leadership in that area in your local context. And so that creates the opportunity for you to become the expert. So become a local expert in something. Get just-in-time relevant education. Go to conferences in your field of interest. Meet people and reach out to mentors either locally or elsewhere who can help you to accomplish your goals. In a medical education realm, I can think of a whole bunch of possible projects that you could do right now. Competency-based medical education leads to endless projects. Um, there's assessment, in-situ simulation is always looking for new places to branch out. You can work on local order sets, guidelines, protocols. You could jump into quality improvement studies. You could create a mini curriculum for something you're interested in, or you could address a continuing professional development need. Pick something you're interested in and work on it. You can start really small, right? One small project led well can take you places. So reach out to others and collaborate because we all have blind spots and we all have areas of expertise. So you use each other to fill the blind spots and the knowledge gaps, and then be open to keep learning and expose your vulnerabilities. The last thing that I'll say is that I think it's really important to be aware of imposter syndrome. It's really easy for all of us to discredit ourselves, but we all have something to contribute. So make sure that you don't stand in your own way, right? Don't use what you don't know as an excuse to not try. Use it as a reason to reach out to someone else who can help you make your project better. So my pearls would be to seek opportunities, to help others because it comes full circle, to extend past your comfort zone, and to be someone that others can rely on. Because in the end, collaboration is king and sharing is caring. <laughs> What's the, so the peer review process for, for submission of cases? What do you, what do you guys normally do? Um, so people can submit cases. Ideally, we like it if they're submitted on our template. Mm -hmm. um, but if they're not, then we have some residents transcribe over to our template. And then generally, I go through and do a a first glance or first pass to make sure that the case sort of makes sense in its flow and there aren't any glaring errors, that the transitions between states make sense. And then I send it out to two separate reviewers. So the majority of them are emergency physicians with an interest in simulation, and there's one critical care physician with an interest in simulation. And so they review the cases and they're specifically um, designated to look at things like the objectives. So does the case meet its objectives? They look at the medical content to make sure that it's sound and up to date. And then they make sure that the case makes sense in its flow. So if your end goal is to get to intubating the patient, does the earlier part of the case actually trigger that or make people realize they need to intubate the patient? And how do you push them to intubate the patient if they're not getting there so that you meet the objective of, for example, intubating an unstable cardiac patient? Because if they don't intubate, then you can't meet that objective. And so yeah. it's a lot of like making sure that the case actually does what it intends. It's interesting how even just doing oral exam questions, sometimes you, you almost have to practice it a few times with actual 
students or residents or, or whatever to actually see the kind of the holes in the flow. Absolutely. <laughs> so I can definitely see how it takes people. Especially because most of us write them based on our own clinical cases. And so what happens yeah, is so if, if someone doesn't think happen. about it the same way or if they're not anticipating it the way you did or, you know, there might have been some small piece of information that you didn't realize was important to you clinically yeah. that might be missing in the mannequin or missing in what you've programmed in the vitals. And so it's that like, how do you create the nudge or how do you make it more obvious or how do you say, oh, okay, actually this other path is fine, but I want to make sure you get to the learning objective of mm -hmm. whatever it may be. Yeah. When, when you say template, are the, so, so submission of these are, are kind of like a, a flow. No, none of it has anything to do with any programming aspect or there's no kind of like no. universal. No. And we did that intentionally because there are, there's a whole bunch of different simulation systems that you mm -hmm. use put out by different companies to actually program the mannequin. And yep. so even what we use at our distributed site is different compared to what they use at the CSBL at McMaster. Yep. I mean, they can use the SIM pads that we use, but they have other things that they prefer using, right? Yep. So, so the idea is that it's a Word document, so yep. you can input that or translate it into whatever tech you want to use. Sure. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, interesting. I'm only a few years ahead of you, so my, my experience <laughs> with Sim and McMaster is quite limited. Um, where 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 is the kind of the formal Sim curriculum at right now for residents, and kind of where do you where do you see it going in the next few years? So right now, the residents get a simulation session an average of once a month when they're in PGY two and PGY four. We're kind of intentional about picking those years because they're years where our residents are doing a merge all year long. Obviously in PGY-5, people are busy studying for an exam, and so they kind of lose interest in simulation mm -hmm. cases. Yeah. In PGY-3, they're off service a lot, and same thing in PGY-1. So we kind of targeted those two groups intentionally. So each session, they get a couple of cases. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that we've done is created a little boot camp for our PGY-1s. So they're on a merge for their first couple of months yeah. of residency. And so while they're on a merge, every week we have a little PGY-1 rounds where there's a didactic lecture on some basic, you know, approach to airway, approach to chest pain, approach to shortness of breath, and then sim cases that are designed to kind of reinforce some of that and try to help improve some of the, or alleviate some of the discomfort that the PGY-1s have about like, oh my God, I'm going to be on call for internal medicine and someone's going to have chest pain on the ward and what do I do? And so some of our cases are actually based around some of those types of things as opposed to emerge yeah. cases yeah, specifically. Okay. Yeah, I mean, emerge, there's always supervision, so. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Feels a little different yeah. saying like, ooh, I'm going to be off on my own, so. Is there any incorporation of any ultrasound stuff? <laughs> okay. um, so interestingly, there's really cool stuff you could do with an ultrasound and some RFID tags. Yeah. So that if they scan in the anatomically correct position, yeah. um, you can set it so that in a trauma, hey, it shows free fluid or now it's showing a pericardial effusion and whatever. Yeah. So we have acquired one of our essentially dead ultrasounds so then we can use the probe and the stand. Yeah. I just have to figure out the tech to actually yeah. make it work. But for now, what we use is my laptop. So they say, oh, I'm going to ultrasound yeah. wherever. And then I have images of here's the poor EF or here's the free fluid or there's no free fluid or whatever it may be. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I think I've actually seen one of the, that kind of system before. Yeah, there's again, it's another eMERGE group who they described well how to do it. I just need to, you know... Take the time to yeah, like so. perform surgery on an ultrasound probe and <laughs> get some RFID tags and maybe one of my sim fellows next year. Maybe yes, maybe. it sounds like a great, <laughs> great uh, task to delegate for sure. <laughs> cool. <laughs> what's, what's the what's the sim center like? I've never been there. 
Um, or, or what the system you guys use. So for us, because our program bought our own mannequins a little while ago, yep. we actually run a lot of our sim sessions um, at the general in kind of a not very fancy setting. <laughs> well, it used to be up in the conference room. So <laughs> yeah, so so it's an advantage now. It's better because it used to be such a pain, right? You'd have to like roll out the mannequin and then have everything had to be portable somehow, and so you'd like spend all this time hauling out these carts of stuff and moving back and forth and. Now we actually have like a proper head of the bed setup and something that's kind of permanent. It's just in like a basement room in the McMaster wing that we're kind of, we have permission, but it kind of feels like we're squatting. And so it looks a little not perfect, but it serves the purpose. And so now we have like a proper medication cart and a proper recess cart and a head of the bed setup and an, a real structure. And yeah, so well, it's kind of so important because I mean, yeah. a lot of it has to do with flow and organization and everything. And exactly. I need so much for that. Yeah, so. so recently the OR changed out their carts. And so we got to, <laughs> wait, so we got the like old OR carts. Yeah. Um, and so now those are stocked to kind of look like a trauma bay so that there's like supplies at the bedside that you can find you know kind of stored like it would be in a drama bay of like hey here's your chest tubes so they can just pull and grab and use what they want without having to be like where do you store the chest tube or you discreetly having it sitting on a tray waiting for them to need it right so you throw situations out like oh no one's stocked the airway <laughs> occasionally <laughs> when they ask that? for things <laughs> lately they've been wanting to put in art lines and i didn't bother yeah. to stock art line supplies because you can't actually put one in on the mannequin yeah. and so like really what difference does it make to have one particular cannula or whatever and so a couple of times lately they've been like i'm gonna put in an art line and i've been like oh we can't find any <laughs> cannula <laughs> which is probably not perfect but um so that's us but then we also just under half of the sessions we actually do go over to the formal um csbl Um, and so they have a neat setup where they have it done properly right Mm -hmm. where you have the one-way mirror that you can watch from Mm -hmm. and the control room is on the other side so then you can speak through a microphone to be the voice of the mannequin and so we do some pretty wild cases there so we save all of our totally crazy ones to be at the same lab so we have some where we have like two patients at once and Mm. one of the patients is actually a standardized patient so we have an actor playing one patient and then a mannequin doing the other patient and it's chaos in the room and lots of fun yeah Hello everyone, it's Kevin Dong again, and I'm going to be providing the summary for today. That was an amazing talk by Dr. Kyla Kaners, and thanks to Dr. Brendan Trotter for interviewing and doing a fantastic job getting great information from Kyla. Let me summarize a couple of things for you. What Kyla talked about was the role of collaboration within the medical community. There's a lot of awesome free online education materials out there, or FOMED, And it's imperative that we don't get bogged down on the publishing and getting that credit for it as your own individual person. Our goal is to share information and collaborate amongst each other so that we can make the medical community a better one. And so Kyla's big emphasis was to try to make sure that this happens on a regular basis and that don't be afraid to share your information. Additionally, finding your niche. Now, what Kyla talked about was finding your niche in a way that makes you happy as well as what you feel most confident in. And for some of our listeners, that may not be something that you already have. And that's okay. Make sure you get involved. Make sure that you find these opportunities so that you can find your niche in the online community. Lastly, 
she talks about imposter syndrome, and this is real, and it doesn't have to hinder you from what you love. Talk with your mentors, talk with your friends, and find that comfort level and the confidence to try new things and capitalize on opportunities. Now, after that talk, she discussed her project in terms of simulation at the local department here at Hamilton General Hospital and Hamilton Health Sciences. She talks about simulation as a great opportunity to continue your CPD endeavors. So if you're a practicing physician in a local community and you don't have one there, then try to incorporate it into your own shop or at least find people that have similar passions so that you can continue on simulating and making sure that your CME is up to date with opportunities to make sure that you practice those difficult scenarios so that when it actually does happen in real life, you're ready to go. Lastly, a little plug for her project that she's been doing on for a long time. Check out emsimcases.com for more information about great cases because there's a lot out there and we don't need to necessarily keep rehashing the same stuff. It's already there. Check it out and it's readily freely accessible and available. And if you're interested in getting involved, check out the website, send Kyla an email. She'd be happy to get back to you. And that's it for our review this month. Stay tuned for the resident section. Thanks a lot, guys. Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Residence Corner. I'm your host, Joanna, and today we have a great session for you. As a resident, medical student, or junior trainee in general, have you ever been frustrated with your program's curriculum? Have you ever thought to yourself, I wish this was taught in a different way? Well, with me here today, I have the pleasure of having Dr. Ashley Luberdink, a fellow resident colleague. Ashley, thank you for being here. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me. As Joanna mentioned, my name is Ashley. I'm a current PGY4 emergency medicine resident at McMaster. For my subspecialty year, I'm focusing on medical education. Thank you for being here, Ashley. Now, tell us a little bit. Why did you choose to do your fellowship in medical education? Are you currently doing the certificate, the master's, or the informal program, for those of us who don't know? So I am currently enrolled in the Royal College Clinician Educator, or CE, Area of Focus Competency Diploma Program. This program provides formal training in med-ed to give you the skills to provide consultation on med-ed advice and guidance for education programs. It involves some really practical training in curriculum design, implementation, teaching and learning, assessment and evaluation, education scholarship, leadership, and simulation, and it's a really great diploma program. Yeah, sounds like a very well-rounded program overall, to be honest with you. Now, tell us a little bit about how you first got involved in it. Was it just a desire? Was it a particular project? Was it a particular mentor? Uh, so luckily, the program director of the CE diploma is one of our own Hamilton emergency medicine clinicians, Dr. Teresa Chan. So she inspired me, and she's been an excellent mentor in achieving many of the checkpoints during my diploma, in addition to being a great mentor for me in my own personal project. So what I'm looking at right now is a redesign of the PGY-1 emergency medicine rounds teaching. So I became interested after I participated in a med-ed project during my PGY-1 year, and then that was also a curriculum redesign project looking at a clerkship curriculum. So I thought it would be a great way to further better my education in medical education. Definitely inspiring work for a PGY-1 level, if I may say so myself. What have you loved about it so far? And more importantly, what have you found challenging about it so far? 
Things that I've loved about the program so far are definitely the practical aspects. So I've been able to apply a lot of the concepts I've been learning in my own teaching encounters. I really have enjoyed the mentorship that's come along with being involved in so many meta-ed avenues. Um, so for example, um, I'm helping to co-debrief the PGY2 simulation sessions with Dr. Kyla Kaners, and I've been able to practice different debriefing techniques while actually being debriefed myself by Dr. Kaners, who's our local simulation expert. Some of the challenging aspects for me have just been involving certain time management strategies. So after learning how to design a curriculum, I'm now in the process of developing my own curriculum with all of the teaching modules and assessment strategies. And these are all due by a deadline of July 1st, which is when my curriculum will go live. So sometimes I find it takes a while before all the concepts and ideas finally all come together to help create a great new product. Speaking from my own learning with you as a junior trainee through the SIM sessions and other medical education projects that you particularly have been involved with, I know how hard you've worked at this and how excited I am and you are uh, for your new curriculum to roll out. Changing gears a little bit from your own experience, why do you think specifically this fellowship or program or diploma certificate is important for future emergency medicine residents or training in this topic specifically is important, whether it's for current staff, um, or uh, junior trainees in general? As emergency physicians, we have a really unique opportunity to help mentor residents and medical students in a busy clinical environment. So I think it's good to have an underlying understanding of why we have different strategies to teach different content. I think it's important to have a good approach to teaching concepts in a busy environment with a lot of distractions. And it's also important to be constantly improving and changing processes and content in a more formal sense. I think we need to have good educators with formal training, understanding the background of the theories and frameworks by which we actually teach our medical education. And I'm sure we can all think back to encounters with great teachers, great educators, and those encounters where teaching was subpar to say. Now that you've told us a little bit about why this is important, how can current physicians, residents, and medical students get a taste of what this type of work involves? So at McMaster specifically, we have a medical education interest group that meets on a monthly basis. And what we do is we discuss key literature concepts within MedEd. Um, for example, like our last couple sessions have focused on leadership in MedEd, simulation debriefing with a focus on the difficult debrief, and also curriculum design. And so these sessions are open to resident physicians, medical students, and faculty with an interest inside emergency medicine and also outside. Um, and also the clinician educator program meets on a monthly basis and reviews current topics in MedEd and also looks at some of the projects other people are designing and looks to see their successes as well with those. So if you're interested, the program director of the CE program, Dr. Teresa Chan, she's a very passionate educator. She would be super happy to meet and help with any project formation or collaboration with interested residents and staff physicians. And she's a great mentor in this area specifically. And if there's one particular take-home message that you want our listeners to leave with when it comes to this topic specifically, what would that be? So before committing to any specific med-ed fellowship project, I think it's really important to discuss your ideas with your mentors and decide what fellowship project works the most with what you want to do and with what you need out of it. So I wanted to be involved in a very applied, focused project, and I think the CE program specifically has been able to give me access to really good mentorship and opportunities within the 
emergency medicine program involving simulation um, and stuff like that. Med ed is always going to be a field where your skills are virtually an asset to any place you decide to work in the future, whether that be a large academic center or a very small community center, your skills will be very valuable. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for being here. We've learned about yet another subspecialty within our uh, five-year emergency medicine program. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you about your passion and work in medical education. And to all our listeners, thank you for tuning in. As many of you know, on June 6, we had our annual awards dinner for excellence in teaching within the emergency department program in Hamilton and surrounding communities. It was held at the Art Gallery of Hamilton, a beautiful venue with a group of very intelligent and sharp-looking staff and fellow residents. It was a great time, and we want to thank all of the staff that helped organize it. But I cannot just tell you about the award dinner without mentioning some of the outstanding awards winner for excellence in teaching. Although many were deserving of these awards with multiple nominees for each category, here are the winners. The Undergraduate Teacher of the Year within the Hamilton area goes to Dr. Carrie English. Your winner for the Niagara Undergraduate Teacher of the Year was Dr. Melanie Senecal. And in the Kitchener-Waterloo area, Dr. Johnny Al-Sarafi. Dr. Brian Levy, on the other hand, received the overall Undergraduate Community Teacher of the Year. Well deserved to all of our winners. And now, the Postgraduate Teaching Awards, with many outstanding nominees as well. The Recognition Awards go to Dr. Kevin Don at HHS, one of our very own podcast hosts. Dr. RJ Eby at St. Joe's Hospital. Dr. Mike Hatcher, representing the Community Postgraduate Teacher of the Year. Dr. Kyla Hagerman in Niagara, and Dr. Dave Waldbillig in Kitchener-Waterloo. Last but certainly not least, Dr. Tanya Solano wins the Emergency Medicine Off-Service Faculty Award. Congratulations to all the winners and nominees. As a resident, I feel lucky to have the opportunity to say that here at McMaster, we are privileged to not only have outstanding teachers in our department, but also others who will go above and beyond to always contribute to our residency emergency medicine program. Again, a number of outstanding and just as deserving nominees for these awards. Dr. Ian Buchanan and Dr. Leanne Shipday received the awards for outstanding contributions to the FRCP and CCFP Emergency Medicine Residency Program, respectively. Thank you to both for all that you do. From the trainee side, Dr. Claire Walner received her EMS and pre-hospital care certificate, and she will be joining the HHS Staff League very soon. Dr. Mohamed Abbasi received his point-of-care ultrasound certificate for his area of focused competence. Many of our residents, as you know, are also committed to research on an ongoing basis. The FRCP Research Award went to Dr. Spencer McDonald, a current PGY-4 in our program. Dr. Allison Yancey received the CCFP Emergency Medicine Research Award, on the other hand. Given that so many of my fellow colleagues are involved in research, an additional award for their commitment to research was presented to Dr. Kumaid Alawadi, a PGY-3 in the FRCP program. The FRCP Outstanding Resident Award was presented to Dr. Christopher Hyde, and the CCFP EM Outstanding Resident Award was presented to Dr. Allison Yancey. Congratulations to you both. As many of you know, the annual awards dinner is also an opportunity to congratulate all of our CCFP and FRCP emergency medicine graduates. Congratulations to all the CCFP graduates, Dr. Mila Bazaraki, Dr. Vera Ivanenko, Dr. Jared Patty, Dr. Justin Powers, Dr. David Ritzy, Dr. David Sheps, and Dr. Allison Yancey. Our current PGY-5s all rock the exam. 
and I'm very proud to say congratulations to all of them. Dr. Saeed Al-Magbali, Dr. Stephanie Bezak, Dr. Jessica Chunk, Dr. Christopher Hyde, Dr. Sarah Lackett-Gatopoulos, and Dr. Samia Sharif. The annual awards dinner goal is to recognize excellence in teaching within our program. As with all of our other awards, outstanding nominees were up for the overall excellence in teaching award, including Dr. Teresa Chan, Dr. Alex Chorley, Dr. Kyle Doroche, and Dr. Leanne Shibday. The award for overall excellence in teaching went to our very own podcast host and director for the clinical educator program, Dr. Teresa Chan. Congratulations and so well deserved. That's all for this year. Hope to see you all at the next annual awards dinner with many more outstanding teachers within our program. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Mac Emerge out! <laughs>